Welcome to our weekly devotional with Dr. Owen Anderson. This week, I'm going to do something a little bit longer, not too much longer, but uh, we normally keep these around five to seven minutes. But I want to look at the book of Amos and give you a, an overview of that book and some themes in it in order to answer this question. Why is there war? Why is there war? Now, this is a pressing question today, but also at many times in human history, it almost seems like it's a, a recurring problem that never really gets solved. And think about the kinds of causes people uh, speak of when they're considering war. Why is this war happening? And they might say, well, this or that ruler is greedy, and he wants some of his neighbor's resources. Or this whole people group is greedy, and they want their neighbor's resources. Or perhaps they're simply uh, violent, a violent people, and they, they enjoy going to war. They're, they're raised up for war uh, from, from their youth. So some causes like this, what, what, you, could, you could add other ones in. But notice how they're all at the human level. And you might look for human causes that are obvious or human causes that are hidden and conspiratorial. But either way, you're looking for human causes. What Amos does is he doesn't let us do that. He doesn't let us stop there. And of course, Amos being in the scripture, this is inspired by God, but it begins with that phrase, the words of Amos. He writes this down, and he doesn't allow us to stop at the human level, although the human level is there. Specifically, sin, and specifically sin relating to our relation to God, and when that relation is broken because of, say, idolatry, the kinds of things that come out in us, the other sins that come out in us from there. So the first chapter goes over Israel's neighbors and the, the role in history, the active force in history is not humans and the kinds of explanations I mentioned a moment ago. The explanation is God's judgment in the world. And you don't hear that mentioned much today, God's judgment in the world. And so here we have it said judgment. This is not part of the this is added on by the editors to summarize what's about to happen. Judgment on Israel's neighbors, thus says the Lord. Well, why is Damascus being judged? For transgressions, for three transgressions and for four, as a pattern in the book. I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. They'd been brought themselves as a judgment on Israel, but they hadn't seen themselves that way. They maybe were purely thinking in the human level and getting Israel back or getting more stuff. They hadn't seen that they too needed to repent and be humbled. Same for Gaza. Same for Tyre. Same for Edom. Thus says the Lord about the Ammonites. And that takes us to the second chapter for Moab. So you can read through each of those and get the details, but the theme is the same, which is it is God that is ruling. These individual countries might have thought they're in charge, and they're the ones initiating war against Israel, and then calamity comes on them by God for their unrepentant heart. But then the tension shifts to Judah, the believers. Now, all of these previously were identified as worshiping idols, unbelievers. But now we get to... Judah, who's supposed to worship the Lord, but they too have three transgressions and for four. They have rejected the law of the Lord. That's where it begins. And the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
They have not kept his statues, and their lies have led them astray. So let's look at the details now. Chapter 3. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What a tender and personal expression. Not known like I have some facts in my mind, but known in this relational way that the word Lord, covenantal God, uh, communicates. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. That is the believers he's speaking to here. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Think about that. Chapter 3, verse 2, reflect on that connection. Wait a minute. Because I've known, you've known me, you will punish me for my iniquities? Yes. That's what the love of God requires. We're not left in our iniquities and the consequences of those iniquities. And then an example. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? For the Lord, God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants and the, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? So using these connections up here, many connections from uh, nature and then a trumpet in the city to the Lord is doing this. There's a connection here. And you should have learned the fear of the Lord. If you heard the lion roar, you'd fear. But God has spoken. Do you not fear? You should be able to proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, in Egypt, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery think of what christ says about how they have no shepherd so the lord says an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered so you think about war here this is not primarily thinking about it in terms of the other human agent indeed they are also being judged and a lot of time is spent in war on who's guilty the other guys are guilty because they did this atrocity. And they'll say, no, you're guilty because you did this atrocity. And that's at the purely human level. And Amos doesn't let us stay there. He directs our attention to God that in both cases, both parties, or really this has multiple parties, all of them are under the judgment of God for God's purpose. And it continues on what that judgment will be. In chapter 4, continuing with the description of judgment. And it gets quite uh, terrible thinking about the Assyrians taking them away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. I gave you cleanness of teeth, meaning they had no food. I also withheld the rain. I would not send rain on you. So as a attributing those things, you might attribute having no food to, well, food got too expensive, inflation was too high, gas cost too much to get the products here. But whatever those causes, it's under the sovereign rule of God. Withholding the rain, it says elsewhere, I bring the rain on the just and the unjust, but also God could withhold the rain. There'll be blight and mildew. You might think, well, we need to get the uh, exterminator out, he'll spray some stuff to get rid of mildew or pestilence, after the manner of Egypt. Think of how terrible that was. But this is not at the purely human or, or material level of causation. It's the level of God 
is bringing us about because of their iniquities, because they did not keep even the first commandment. And read this phrase. This, this is, blows you away. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Imagine that. Prepare to meet your God. You're not simply meeting an enemy, whether it's blight or mildew or famine or the Egyptians or the Moabites. You're meeting God who's bringing this judgment on you because of your own sins. Who is the one who treads on the heights of the earth? The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. And you can imagine the people might now say, well, but there is no God. Well, that's one of the iniquities. That's, that's all the first chapter and the first part of the second chapter are about countries who said there is no God like that. So that's not new to today. And then chapter five, continuing on the theme. And look at verse six, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it. And then in verse eight, he made the Pleiades and Orion. Interestingly, many of the peoples of the world worshiped these. Some of them said that aliens or gods came from the Pleiades to seed earth or from the belt of Orion. No, this is the one who made those things. He calls the waters and pours them out. The Lord is his name. Do you know God? Do you know that God rules the world? Whatever secondary causes, you might watch the weather channel daily to get some sense of weather. Whatever those causes are, it's God who rules over them. So again, command is seek good and not evil that you may live. Life is in doing what is good. Life and death, good and evil. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the gates. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. And he says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You might see religious people like that, religious people who say, I can't wait until God comes in judgment. And woe to them. They don't understand what's going on, and they don't understand their own sin, that they're in darkness. Running away from the darkness like a man fleeing from a lion and a bear gets him. Or you go into a house to rest and a serpent bites you. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I will not take delight in your solemn assembly. So even the religious feasts are filled with this wickedness. And they aren't pleasing to God. Then he continues on the woes in, in six. Woe to those who are at ease. Woe to those who have beds of ivory. The Lord has sworn by himself, I abhor the pride of Jacob. In pride, humans set themselves up against God. And so all of these calamities are coming as judgments of God to call the believers to see their remaining sin and repent. And that's similar on the unbelievers, except for that they're unbelievers. They're not even affirming that there is a God. And so you see this prayer. Amos says, oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And you might have thought that before about the church. How small. The Christians are so weak. And the ones that are there, perhaps they're, they're involving the same sins as we saw a moment ago. And the Lord relented. 
Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And then we get an uh, accusation against Amos. And the Lord intervening. And then it says this, this is in, in chapter eight, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people, Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day. So this iniquity, their iniquity is bringing judgment on them. And it describes more of that judgment here. And then chapter nine. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. The altar is where the sac the atoning sacrifice is given. There's the Lord standing there. This is prefiguring what Christ will do. Strike the capital until the thresholds shake. The Lord of hosts who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt who pours out upon the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. But he ends with this, all sinners of my people shall die by the sword. All those who say disaster shall not overtake us. But in that day, I will raise up a booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its fruits and build it as days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Behold, the day is coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. So it's ending with a promise. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Now, is this, think about this. God brought this calamity on them because of their iniquity so they would repent and turn to him. If he's restoring them, that assumes they have indeed repented. Otherwise, it was all a waste. So these promises indicate the people will not stay that way forever. They will repent and will turn back to God. And in fact, what it says is, oops, I hit the wrong one. What it says is that all people will come to know God. All the peoples of the earth will come to know who God is. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. So we can take that merely as a kind of physical promise about land, or we can take it as the promise that all of the land will be filled with believers. Unbelievers will be converted. Now, the point here is to talk about war. Why is there war? And to say that, like the prophet Amos, we too can see that God rules in history. We're not simply left to human explanations and tossed back and forth by maybe this side gives an explanation and it's kind of persuasive, but then the other side gives an explanation and they're persuasive, and we just get tossed back and forth. Instead, we can see that whether it was Edom or Israel, God is acting. God is not a respecter of persons. God is acting for the same purpose in each, which is to bring them back to him. Now, the unbeliever may not do that, right? The Edomites may never do that, but there, there's a, a quality in what God is doing. 
the believer sees their iniquity and repents. Perhaps the, uh, the Edomite hardens and becomes prideful just the way that Pharaoh did. But the believer says, yes, I see what I've done before God and I repent and I turn back to the Lord to keep his commands to show that I love him. And that's the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. And that's the distinction of how the believer and the unbeliever are interpreting history. Not simply as human events, but history displays the active ruling of God. And so as we end here out, I want to ask is, do we see God ruling in history? When you look at history, is that what you see? Or do you see just human events and, and they make you mad because these other guys are doing wrong things and so you, you get upset and you wonder, why aren't they being stopped? And instead, turning back to saying, no, because of your iniquity, God says, these things are coming upon you. And instead, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. He who made Pleiades and Orion, he who made all things, turn to him and have life. Seek good and not evil that you may live and be established. And that's what says, let justice roll down. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Don't simply wish for that, but wish for repentance, that humans everywhere may turn to God, may begin to seek good and not evil. This is why there's war.